Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning, good morning. It is a Wednesday, the 5th of April. April 2023. This is Wednesday of Holy Week. I hope that you are joining us and reading through the Bible together during this Holy Week. You can still do so at MyFaithRadio.com. Just encourage you to be in the Word of God in order that the Word of God might get into you so that, you know, when you're out there in the world that God so loves and the world squeezes you, when things about the world press up against you, that what would come out would be the very grace and the very truth of the Lord our God. That's my my hope for you this day. Um, Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. So we could um, have a conversation about the rightful fear of God versus the temporal fear of how people are going to respond to something. But I think that maybe, um, maybe this morning what we'll focus in on here is the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. So there's a you know, a calendar marker here, the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. So the Jewish Passover this year, 2023, actually begins at sundown tonight, Wednesday, April the 5th. Uh, It ends on Thursday, April the 13th. Many Jewish communities will be holding seders, um, what you and I would view as the Passover meal. We would, uh, the Last Supper is the sort of Christian um, experience related to this where Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal, but he absolutely um, rewrites the script and writes himself into it. Um, Many Jewish communities will be holding those seders tonight and tomorrow night, the first two nights of the festival. And the proximity of the Jewish Passover and the Christian observance of the events of the Passion of the Christ or Holy Week is no coincidence. I mean, Jesus intentionally came to Jerusalem you could argue to celebrate the Passover, but really to become our Passover. That's the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And to understand um, that, we must understand what the Passover is. And so for that story, we would look back to Exodus chapter 12. And there you will see God's justice and mercy both demonstrated in the 10th plague, Um God provides salvation for his people through the blood of a lamb, an unblemished lamb. God spared the firstborn sons of Israel, while the firstborn in every other Egyptian household died. 
the Hebrews were passed over. They were spared, not because they were better, not because their sons were better, but because the spotless lamb had died in their place and its blood covered them. Salvation through substitution. The Passover lamb dies, the people live. The message of Passover is also the message of Good Friday. And in his infinite love, God made a way for his justice and his mercy to both be fully expressed and satisfied at the cross. And salvation through substitution happens there through the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover points to the cross. The Lamb prefigures Jesus. The true substitute is on the scene. John the Baptist is the one who reveals it first. John 1 verse 20, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in the same way that God provided the sacrificial ram to spare Isaac, remember that story? Abraham and uh, called upon to sacrifice his son Isaac, and he trusts that God will supply a substitute for salvation, and indeed he does. Well, here God provides the sacrificial son to spare us all. Indeed, in the, uh, in the words of 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, We have been redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the only question is, are you covered by his blood? In Exodus 12, it wasn't enough to identify as a Hebrew. It wasn't enough to say, hey, I'm a part of God's people. It wasn't enough even to sacrifice the lamb or be a part of a family that sacrificed a lamb. You had to apply the lamb's blood to your door. It had to cover you. And you and I must consider the cross today and the Lamb of God who was slain. And it's not enough to just identify as one of his people. You actually have to say, God, apply that blood to me. I put my faith in him. His blood applied personally to me, salvation through substitution, offered to all, but only applied to those who actually ask God to apply the blood to them, that their sins might be passed over. It's the message of Passover, it's the message of Good Friday, and it's the hope of the world. And my friend, it's the only way to salvation. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Jeff Bilbro's back from Grove City College and Front Porch Republic. You can find what we're talking about today aggregated at the Water Dipper at frontporchrepublic.com. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Carmen. Hey, can we start with why kids um, aren't falling in love with reading? Of course. I'm a literature professor. I know. So let's, um, let's go back in time. I mean, did people read to you when you were little? Did you fall in love with reading? If so, how? Yes, uh, you know, both my parents, especially my mom, uh, would read aloud to us uh, pretty much daily for, I don't know, at least 30 or 45 minutes. And those were kind of uh, definitely highlights of of our daily routine when we could all gather around and, and just get lost in the story together. So I think 
I resonated with her account of uh, reading for pleasure and getting caught up in, in the story without trying to analyze it to death first. <laughs> um, so reading for joy, reading for pleasure, I guess I'm thinking about, you know, myself and how much reading I do um, just to prepare to do yeah. what I do every day for work. Um, and then I think about the scripture reading that I do that's devotional. And then I say, hmm, do I, do I really read for pleasure anymore? And it's, it's actually um, more rare than I'd like to admit that I have time and opportunity to read for pleasure. When I do read for pleasure, I do get lost in, um, in a good story. Yeah, and I think your experience is probably not uncommon. I think we read a lot more nonfiction, uh, shorter pieces, uh, you know, articles, etc., things that are factual rather than plot-based, character-driven narratives. And, you know, there's definitely a place for both kinds of reading. I don't think there's just one-size-fits-all of good reading. But, um, but that dimension of sharing a story, uh, hopefully, you know, reading a sharing it with other people, talking about it as a, um, as a good in and of itself without some kind of pragmatic, now I can have this data, uh, is really important for developing our imaginations and helping us, uh, yeah, better interpret and respond to the real people that we interact with on a daily basis. So it's a kind of a exercise for our imaginative muscles. All right, I'll remind you if you're listening right now that we talked with Sarah McKenzie about the Read Aloud oh, Revival, yes. right? Yeah, so I just yeah. want to remind people where they can find those lists. You can go to readaloudrevival.com. You can get all the book lists and Sarah's encouragement to make time to read aloud in the midst of everything else that's going on in your daily life. Um, so you you resonate with uh, with what Sarah says about reading oh, yeah. aloud. She's and so great. You know, she she is. I think she is exactly what this article is calling for in terms of let's read good books together, talk about them. And, and she, you know, there's critical analysis in her conversations uh, that they get, they talk about themes and such, but never in a way that kills the story. Right. Uh, the, the pleasure and delight of the story and, the, and for her, the pictures are always primary. And I think that's the right the right order. I love that. All right. When we come back, we're going to um, shift to um, some nonfiction and we're going to talk about the lab leak, the lab leak theory. We're going to talk about disinformation and then we're going to talk about how disinformation gets created when some stories get stifled. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Listen to Faith Radio live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app at your app store today. Continuing our conversation with Jeff Bilbro. Um, Jeff, let's talk about um, this this piece in the New York Times, um, Megan Stack talking with Anthony Fauci, calling the lab leak theory disinformation created disinformation. Um, what's going on here? Yeah, I thought this was a really thoughtful piece. You know, there's so much heated rhetoric around Anthony Fauci, around disinformation, around COVID, of course. And I thought this was a really sober um, uh, analysis of how communication strategies from Fauci and other public officials 
that prioritize sort of public messaging. Like here is what we want the public to think at the at the expense of being honest about here's what we don't know <laughs> or or here are all of the factors involved and here's what we're certain about, here's what we're not certain about, let's be honest. Uh, when you kind of do public uh, relations as just here's the certain facts and let's boil it down, that's when you actually create disinformation and you and you sow distrust because inevitably you say things with certainty that then uh, a few weeks or months later you have to walk back and then people don't know what's trustworthy and what's not trustworthy. And so I think she does a really good job of showing how at these critical junctures over the course of the pandemic, Fauci and others uh, said things in public very confidently that they actually were not confident about. And uh, in that regard, they contributed to this kind of um, situation in which people didn't know what was trustworthy or what was not trustworthy. I remember, I mean, this goes back a long time, but I remember back in the day when I was doing um, teacher training for Sunday school teachers. And one of the things that like, I really sought to impress upon them was never tell a child something um, when they're little about the Bible, yeah. about God, that one day they're going to find out is potentially not true. Like, yeah. j- just don't do that. Don't don't tell someone when they're little, when they're under your teaching, or in this case, when they're under your authority and they're trusting you with something like their health and welfare and some scary thing like a pandemic. Don't tell us something that we might discover later on is not true. I mean, you can yeah. you can say these are you know, this is the range of options. This is what we're looking at. But if you if you sell us something as truth. Um, and then we discover later on that it's not true, you have lost all moral authority to teach us anything else. And that's really the challenge, I think, when we talk about disinformation and we talk about who we then, you know, who are we going to believe? Well, once you've lied to me uh, and I've caught you in it, um, you're going to have to do a lot to regain my trust. Yeah, I think that example of Sunday school teachers with students is perfect, Carmen, because Again, you know, that's it. Anthony Fauci or these other public officials, they know a lot more about science and medicine, et cetera, than the people they're talking to. And so the tendency, the temptation is I'll just give the kind of simple childlike version. Uh, but the science school example is perfect because I think as teachers, uh, it's, so, it's such a dangerous job, uh, which I think of all the time. Uh, because you have to explain things to people who don't have the full context, who can't understand all the complexities in a way that as they learn more, they realize you have given them, hopefully, the proper categories. And the, the, you haven't, maybe you simplified things, but you haven't misrepresented anything. Exactly. Uh, so it's really hard. You know, it's not easy. But I think you're exactly right that you can't tell half-truths or false simplifications, even to people like children or like a, you know, a, a public that knows less about the nuances of biology, um, or, or you will just create mistrust and, uh, and confusion. All right. I'd love to talk with you, um, Jeff, about this um, 
issue related to millions lacking access to running water um, and maybe uh, maybe a solution hiding in plain sight. Um, what what might desalinization plants and water pipelines look like? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, the recent rains in California have um, alleviated at least some of the extreme drought conditions in that part of the country. But it's a long term problem with too many people and not enough um, groundwater in so much of the country. And I think that the temptation is to look for big, flashy technological solutions. Yeah, desalinization plants or piping in water from other parts of the country. Um, but maybe what's more compelling, what's a, a longer term, more viable route is much less uh, flashy, but really complicated, elegant, and yet also simple um, types of rainwater collection systems that just use the water that is available much, much more uh, effectively and recycle it in ways. So I just thought this article on all the kinds of creative and, and uh, elegant ways of gathering and using and reusing the rainwater that does fall in Tucson and other parts of the desert Southwest is exactly the kind of solution that, that uh, more work needs to be done. Even if, you know, it's maybe less uh, immediately compelling than the big scale solutions. Yeah, I mean, rainwater should be the primary water source of everyone's household. That's what he contends. Yeah. Um, and I don't know um, if if you're aware of this, but I, there's this growing movement in the part of the country where I live to actually like make it illegal to capture water, even like that yes. which collect. So, so I think there's a. Um, there's a broader conversation to be had here. Yeah. I hope this provokes it to happen. Um, it, it does seem counterintuitive that it should be illegal to capture the water that falls upon my own <laughs> land um, to water my own land. Yeah, I, I think it, it just that betrays the kind of mindset we have where everything's got to be centralized and we have to collect all the water in some public utility and then redistribute it as opposed to what if it gets a lot more local, uh, like very local, and try to consume the water that falls where the water falls. And uh, maybe that's, you know, maybe the farmers downstream who want the irrigation rights aren't happy with that. Um, but it's sure better than continuing to to draw down our groundwater reserves. All right. And then um, as I scrolled to the bottom of that article, the next article that popped up um, for me to read was about um, lawmakers across the country pushing bans on Chinese purchases of American farms. So will you keep mm -hmm. one um, eyebrow lifted um, toward toward that storyline and maybe we could talk about it in the future? Sure thing. Yeah, I think that ownership, land ownership versus land stewardship yeah. Um, particularly when we talk about the breadbasket of our country and the world, um, you know, that's, I just feel like that's a, a conversation that Christians need to be pressing into as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, we love talking with you. We love your spirit. Um, thank you for, for your partnership, um, in the gospel from the first days, um, and have a blessed Holy week. Well, thank you, Carmen. You too. Thank you. That's Jeff Bilbro. You can find him at Grove City College. You can also find him at Front Porch Republic. That's where he posts the water dipper, and that's where we were drawing from today. 
You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. Now I'm a When you think about um, the world and everyone in it, do you have a particular country or city or maybe person around the world that you pray for every day? Is, is Is there a place that God has particularly knit into your heart of particular concern? Most of us, it is, it is knit there because we have a heart that beats with a passion for a particular um, people group or a particular plight that uh, people are facing. Um, I have a friend who her genuine concern is for the is for the deaf around the world, and so for her, it's not a place but it's a people and she is just ardently concerned in in her prayer life for people who can't hear and obviously as a broadcaster um i wonder what what it what it is what's what's it like to live in silence all the time um so today as we turn our attention with Ruth Kramer to all the things that are going on in the world, or at least a handful of them, um, and we look at how Christians are responding in all kinds of various places to all kinds of human concerns, I want you to give prayerful attention to that place or those people or that plight that God has knit particularly into your heart. Like that, that is the place or the people or the plight of particular concern to you. And you be praying for that and on their behalf, um, even as we turn our attention with Ruth to all that is going on in the world. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Joining us now, Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning. How are you? Oh, I am. Uh, I am. I am much better than I was early in the week. I um. I returned from a conference and I had um quite a cold. Um, and I'm I'm doing much better. Thank you. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear yeah. it. Getting some energy, feeling human again. That's always important. Yeah. How goes the training? Um, everything hurts and I'm dying. Hmm. It's everything hurts when I get out of bed, all the check engine lights come on, but you know, it's the price you pay for discipline and, um, uh, it'll pay off in the summer. Amen. We'll, uh, we'll be praying that your, um, that your body and your muscles will respond and your recovery will be quick and all those good things. Yeah. Um, Pakistan. Um, wow. I just, I feel as if we could talk about what's happening in this particular country, every single time we talk, um, bring us up to date on this latest event. 
Well, as we've been covering the issues in Pakistan, um, one of the things has been just kind of the the economy and the difficulties uh, that people are facing with the inflation and uh, the drop in the value of of the uh, currency, um, scarcity of products, which drives prices up. And this is all coming to a head pretty much on a regular basis. Um, What we're hearing from our partners at FMI is that the inflation rate is the worst it's been in nearly 60 years. And in just March alone, inflation soared to like 35%, a little higher than 35%. So people are already anxious and food is at a a premium uh, level of scarcity. So even if you could find food, can you afford to buy it? And the answer is usually no. So the uh, starvation issues are now coming to bear with a food insecurity crisis on top of the political issues and the economic issues in Pakistan. Um, When you see a bag of flour that actually becomes available, uh, you see a stampede from people to try to get to the the resources as soon as possible before it runs out or, you know, trying to grab what they can uh, in the event that there won't be another delivery of uh, of food. And Stampede recently, I, I think it was last week, we saw like 20 people who died in that stampede because uh, of, of the food insecurity situation. And most of the victims in that uh, situation were women and children because the women were in the marketplace trying to secure food for their families. Uh, And of course, they had their kids with them. So those kinds of situations are uh, cropping up over time and again. Um, Our partner there um, in Pakistan says the black market is basically where it runs anything right now. You know, he he was uh, going through the black market to get gas for his vehicle because if you try to buy it on the regular market, you can't get it. You, you just mm. it's not available. So, in order to be able to function as a a leader in this ministry where he has to travel, he had to get gas, and that means going to the black market. And as he passed, you know, uh, go, went through the black market to get gas for his car, he saw these lines for flour. He saw all of the things. That uh, that people are desperate to try to find uh, in a thriving under market uh, because the government can't actually handle what's going on there. Um, and yet, you know, when you have these kinds of situations, it does allow for um, gospel moments. I, you know, it doesn't seem like you might be able to connect the dots there. But with FMI, they are able to assist some of their uh, church planters uh, that they're trying to train up into leadership roles. Uh, with goods and services so that they are able to meet some of the physical needs in their communities. And as it happens uh, in this situation, one of the FMI-supported church planters had a Muslim neighbor who was really struggling to find some food. And so rather than just look out for himself, he was able to share some of the resources that he had. A bag of flour is what really started the conversation. Um, and the, the Muslim was asking, you know, why are you helping me and to get this this flower? And the man said, well, it's because this is what the Bible teaches us. This is how we love our, our neighbors. And, and that was an opportunity to be hands and feet of Christ and open those gospel opportunities, uh, those doors for conversations that were previously closed. So it's a serious situation. It is something we want to be praying into. But as we're seeing with so many of our partners at work in Pakistan, there is a body of Christ. It is vibrant. It is under pressure, but it is vibrant. And so we can come alongside them and be praying for them, be praying wisdom and boldness and and uh, courage as they just kind of go about in their daily uh, their daily business. But also we can be asking God to provide their daily bread. 
Ruth, um, one of the places where you have helped us train our attention um, is is Haiti and what is going on there. Um, the gang uh, control and violence continues, and an increasing number of missionaries and mission organizations are actually departing. Um, can you tell us what's happening with Mission Aviation Fellowship um, and and the, their departure um, from Haiti? This is something that nobody likes to talk about, um, and it wasn't a decision that was made lightly, but um, MAF has decided to suspend its operations in Haiti from April 1st. 2023 to January 1st, 2024, um, because current operations are not safe or sustainable. Um, in this situation, uh, you've got 58% of the population under the poverty line. Uh, there's a food insecurity that affects over 4 million, almost 5 million people in Haiti. And the increase in kidnappings in 2022 is over 100%. So, it, it's it's just not a situation that is a good thing. Um, the gangs are are basically holding for ransom things that are coming into the port. So goods and supplies are not getting out of the the containers and getting where it needs to go. They're kind of hoarding all of the the wealth of the nation in the ports because they control like two thirds of Port-au-Prince. Um, and the the violence that comes with that has scared away a lot of people because um, you know you don't want to walk in a situation like that. MAF's typical. Uh, approach to these kinds of situations is we're going to stay put for as long as possible. But in this situation, the gangs have made it very difficult to continue to sustain their operations. Um, already, MAF has uh, taken measures to try to protect the families and the children, uh, the, the wives and, and children of the, the pilots, MAF pilots, and they've already evacuated the families into the U.S. Um, and the pilots that stayed in Haiti for the last several months have been kind of commuting back and forth between the U.S. and Haiti. So they'll stay on for two weeks uh, on duty in Haiti and then come home for a couple of weeks to be with their families. And they'll be they'll fly back to Haiti and be two weeks on, two weeks off. Um, that was kind of the rotation that they were doing. But that became not sustainable uh, very quickly, too, because um, they had a situation where um, gang violence near an MAF residence uh just proved that they weren't able to keep their pilots safe anymore. And, and actually, the pilots had moved out of their compounds and they were living in the hangar. So um, this is just a situation. It's a difficult decision to make um, because they don't want to leave people behind. But they also feel like they can't function to their best uh, capacity when all of the efforts are are put toward just security. You know, with eight flights a day, they they can't get their work done if all they're doing is paying attention to the security issues. Mm -hmm. So in this nine-month suspension, um, they're going to try to modify the existing program uh, in the hope that they'll be able to come back in January and serve Haitians in a more sustainable way. Um, they're just trying to shift things over because this situation may not change very quickly. Um, as we've already seen, there's no functioning government, and that left the power vacuum in place, which has been rushed, which has been filled by the gangs, essentially. Um, so we we're going to be following up not only with MAF uh, again to find out, you know, how this is uh, what they're going to be doing, but we're going to be talking to a few other partners as well uh, to find out 
you know, how this is affecting what they're going to be doing. And some of the partners uh, that are living not in Port-au-Prince, but in f- bigger cities outside of the region, outside of Port-au-Prince, and uh, see, you know, how this kind of a situation um uh, may affect different ministry opportunities because these guys are bringing in supplies. So if the supply line gets cut off, how are they going to get those supplies from point A to point B? Uh, folks on the text line asking about an update on um, Mission Aviation Fellowship missionary pilot um, who was arrested in Mozambique. Um, yeah, yeah. I, there's good there's good news on that front, isn't there? Well, we weren't given leave to talk about it out loud. So oh. um, we have not been cleared uh, the, to, to say much right. more. There has been progress, and it's good news. We can continue to pray. There's been some conflicting uh, information um, from different offices. So, again, we don't want to jeopardize what is going on. But we'll continue just be, to pray. Continue to pray. We'll continue to pray, and we'll be very hopeful um, on that front. Is that fair? We'll do that. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. We'll do that. Um, Let's take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to take a pivot toward Iran and we're going to have Ruth bring us um, a story from there about the legal status of the hijab. Um, What 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 would you what would you do? How would you respond if the culture in which you lived required you to wear a particular garment over a particular part of your body? Um, because you are a particular kind of person, in this case, a woman. Um, hijabs are a legal matter in Iran, and Ruth's going to help us understand that next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. This is my body given for you. This is the cup that holds the blood of a new covenant. This is for Ruth Kramer is with us today from Mission Network News. You can find everything that we're talking about today and a whole lot more at missionnews.org. Um, Ruth, you, you have a story here out of Iran. Um, you know, I'll just confess that, you know, we pay attention selectively for a period of time until something erupts in a different part of the world. But the protests in Iran um, related to the hijab, um, this is this is an ongoing reality. Um, so where where are we now? Well, over the weekend, a situation uh, came up because of a mother and daughter who went into a shop uh, and, without wearing the hijab and the shop owner. Uh, became enraged and threw a pot of yogurt at them. Um, this was all caught on video, and that video went viral very quickly. And it seemed like it was almost going to stir up another round of protests until the president, uh, uh, Iran's president, uh, Abraham Raisi, basically came out in support of um, the legal requirement of hijabs for women. He's, he says, this is the law, and you need to follow the law. And um, this has been a point of contention because it's uh, women see it as a kind of a 
uh, subjugation of other person um, because of what it represents. It feels like an oppressive kind of a, a thing. It's an edict that they don't have a choice uh, in in the matter. Um, and it's selectively enforced. So you have the um, sort of like these secret police that are going around enforcing the code mainly on women. And they look for sometimes the, the most minute uh, things that you wouldn't necessarily see or or be conscious of, uh, and and it becomes a criminal matter almost immediately. Uh, you, you know, the hijab is the most obvious thing, or maybe wearing the full burqa or something like that. Um, but you know, our partners uh, with international media, media ministries were indicating that um, even something as simple as forgetting to wear socks can land you in a whole lot of trouble. Uh, one of their their friends was uh, going out on a particularly hot day. And neglected to put socks on. Uh, she was wearing shoes, a full burqa. You know, her face was covered, her head was covered, and um, the police saw that she was not wearing socks. So they took her in for uh, interrogation. She was with her sister, and basically, they were given a paper that said, "I promise not to prostitute myself anymore." And they were told to sign it, and if they signed it, they were allowed to go home. But that put them then in the legal system as uh, having a history of prostitution for something like not wearing socks. And all of this connects back to the issues of of uh, recognizing women as people, as citizens in the country of Iran. It's, it's causing a lot of disillusionment within the country. And uh, the country has a large segment of population that are young people who just really don't want to follow what's going on as the leadership of the Islamic Republic continues to try to bear down uh, on uh, keeping things um, at a dull roar, essentially. Um, these are the situations that are facing people in Iran. Um, when you add into it the other part of not being Muslim, let's say you've converted and now you're a follower of Christ, all of the, um, I guess, spotlight is on you. So if you are a second-class citizen because you're female and you're a Christian, um, you basically aren't even a person in Iran. And uh, that is kind of a, a mindset that is reinforced over and over and over and over again within the country. So you have ministries like international media ministries that are trying to bring the gospel onto every screen and share the hope that comes in Jesus Christ because people are turning to a lot of other things. They're turning away from Islam. They're looking for hope. They're responding to the hope of Christ. And in this situation, IMM is retelling the story of Esther. So they're putting the story of Esther into video and they're trying to say, um, God sees you and he's brought you into uh, this situation for such a time as this. Here is the hope that comes from Jesus Christ. Here is what one person can do to change things. Um, and it's it's something that they're working on very quickly because this is uh, a, a series of stories that would impact so many people in Iran right now. So we can be praying that uh, production goes ahead without uh, any more hiccups. We can be praying that as the team continues to thoughtfully uh, bring in the conversation to the hope of Jesus, uh, that people would be ready and willing to hear that, that the Holy Spirit is already moving ahead. Um, you know, when you look at Iran being a, such a small country and you see how many people are turning their lives over to Christ, that's why we get to, we can say now that Iran is home to probably the fastest growing body of Christ in the world. Mm. 
Um, the the whole sock thing, I'll just confess to you, um, caught my attention in this particular article. And I was thinking, Ruth, because I, I think that often as Christians, we're like, we don't have anything like this. Like, we don't, we're not doing anything like this. We don't have anything like this. And then I thought back to a period of time when this friend of mine, David Henderson, who's a pastor, um, stood up in front of a, a large gathering of Christians and he took off his shoes um, and he's standing there barefooted in front of, you know, an entire assembly of people who are in, you know, suits, in their view, appropriately addressed for um, for the kind of worship service they were engaged in. And, and, he, and he talked about standing on holy ground and what it looks like, um, you know, to stand before a holy God and to enter into his presence and to actually then preach without shoes on. And it was uncomfortable for a, for a lot of people. And following that same event, <clears throat> um, during which I had opportunity to be in some kind of leadership up front as well, um, I got, um, well, let's just say reprimanded from a number of people because I had worn open toe shoes. And I'm like, okay, now wait a second. What we're, we're saying on the one hand, we ought to be standing before God uh, in bare feet. Like we ought to be recognizing that we're standing on holy ground. And yet we're going to say to women, you can't wear shoes that show any part of your toe because what? The men in the, the men are not, they're going to be inflamed. Like what's wrong with us? So I just want to say for people who think that, um, hey, this is just, uh, this is just Islam that's got, a problem with sexualizing women, you know, in every way um, and feeling like they got to be covered up every portion and every part. We have issues with open toe shoes for women in leadership in uh, in in Christian environments. So um, there you go. <clears throat> I'll just leave that there. Talk with us about what's going on um, in Turkey in terms of the earthquake relief. Um, there are some Christians there who are struggling to continue to provide aid. Right. Well, again, this is one of our FMI partners, Pastor Enver, and he was distributing relief supplies to the quake-affected area in Turkey. He was like traveling 700 miles each way to make sure that the, the survivors had you know food, water, and shelter, and medicine as much as he could provide. Uh, so he was out there taking care of people. And at some point, um, some of the police came in and basically told him to stop doing what they were doing. You know, they they said. Uh, we are carrying out the orders of the district governor who is commanding you to stop doing what you're doing. Um, and the Christians were saying, well, why are you stopping us? You, who's going to help these survivors if we're not here? And the police said, it doesn't matter. Just stop. You know, they can take care of themselves. You need to leave. And it just, you know, it just boggles the, the mind for what is happening in the effort to try to to clamp down on the message of of Jesus Christ because these people weren't going in there and and having like a a revival meeting or anything like that they were just going in there literally with a cup of cold water in Jesus name and the district governor got wind of it and said can't have that message it's conflicting it's confusing um so you need to leave and so they rejected the aid and uh, and that was the situation. Fortunately, that situation was isolated. I don't know what happened to the 150 people that they were trying to help, but um in this situation, people are drawn to the Christians because they are they are the people that take time to listen to the stories, that grieve with people who've lost things, that um, walk life alongside 
uh, the people who are struggling to find hope in a very difficult situation. And um, we need to continue to pray for these situations. We can pray for Pastor Enver as he's looking for ways to connect connect again with the earthquake survivors. Um, the situation can be very difficult because of the radical elements in Turkey's society. Um, uh, so we just need to continue to um, ask God to provide open doors uh, and that he puts Pastor Enver and some of those FMI church partners in the right place at the right time uh, to answer some of those questions and needs. Thank you, as always, Ruth, for bringing us so many concerns um, related to our brothers and sisters around the world and so many opportunities to connect with ministries on the ground. Um, we appreciate absolutely what um, what you're doing and the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Come to the table and taste of the glory. And savor the sorrow He's dying tomorrow All right, a uh, little shout out to the guys that are putting together the cabs that are going to go on the John Deere tractors. Mm-hmm. Rolling out to farmers this spring. So a little shout out to the guys on the line, uh, particularly our friend Jason out there. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Thank you also to our friend who texted in, um, who apparently had the app running um, at Sam's Club this morning, and then um, basically fed our information back to us via a text. And just so that you know, um, the text, uh, the texting service, here's Carmen LeBurge as Carving the Bird. So there you go. I am apparently coming to you this morning as Carving the Bird, also known as Carmen LeBurge. Um, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. The text line is open, and I am enjoying you on it today. 877-933-2484. And to answer um, Jim's question in Connecticut this morning, um, hey, uh, how, lo- how long back does the practice of the hijab or the history of the hijab go? Something like 2500 B.C., Mesopotamia, very old practiced. Um, definitely experienced a resurgence and got very politicized in the mid-1970s. Not strictly a Muslim thing. Um, no, I mean, you know, don't you see Mary basically wearing a hijab in every, you know, Christmas crush scene? I'm just saying. Uh, yeah, it's a very old practice for women to wear head coverings. Yeah, it's, it's actually biblical, too. We got another hour up next. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.